Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to thank uh, the National Council and its uh, president, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony, for uh, the invitation to participate again in this uh, important conference. Uh, Dr. Anthony and his, and his colleagues uh, have given us the most difficult part of the Middle East to talk about. That is to say, uh, the area that is variously uh, known as the Fertile Crescent, uh, as Bilad Sham, uh, the putative heartland of the Arab world, a region that has never really fully uh, been able to uh, define itself. So we're talking about geopolitical dynamics in Syria, Lebanon, uh, and Iraq, uh, a most troubled region. A word of history uh, about the nature of this region. There have been several projects, I think as many of you know, to try and uh, define this region in political terms, to establish a kind of common identity, a common uh, sense of community. Of course, originally, for a very long time, it was uh, a number of uh, Ottoman Turkish districts. Then after the First World War and after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, uh, New states were established uh, with the uh, uh, decisive uh, intervention of Britain and France. And at the same time, a number of local political movements arose to try and shape a possible future political identity for this area. Originally, of course, there was the Hashemite project and the Arab Revolt, the story of the Arab Revolt in World War I, and the competing Hashemite projects from the Hashemites in Jordan and the Hashemites in Iraq hoped to uh, establish a certain kind of Arab uh, independent state under uh, Hashemite uh, auspices. Later on, there were more um, nationalist projects, uh, one of them that is now perhaps not so well known was the project of the Syrian National Social Party, known by its French initials as the PPS, uh, under the leadership of its charismatic founder, Antoun Saadi, to create a greater Syria in this region, uh, whose boundaries went from Kuwait and then took a short hop across the Mediterranean to Cyprus. Uh, the Syrian National Party still exists. Uh, if you walk down the streets of uh, Ras Beirut, you will see that they're still there. But the idea of a greater Syria on the model of the PPS is an idea uh, whose time did not come. And then finally, and one of the most uh, significant projects was the Arab Nationalist Project, uh, exemplified in this part of the Arab world by the Ba'ath. And the idea, of course, was to establish ultimately Arab unity a la Ba'ath uh, uh, in, this, in this area. So as you can see, uh, it, it, is, it is not a place that is politically well defined. And the states that have come to exist in the region, three of which we are talking about today, are of relatively 
uh, recent construction, and the constructors were not really all that indigenous. So we're looking now uh, at a, uh, a region that today is the focus of several major conflicts. On the global level, you're seeing a rivalry now, a renewed rivalry uh, between the United States and Russia playing out uh, in this region. And of course, some people are wondering, uh, as we've heard today, whether the U.S. is in decline and whether the Russians are being very clever. Other people are suggesting that the Russians are desperate and defensive, uh, but there are those who think that uh, the Russians are actually uh, predatory and aggressive. But that's, that's an issue that uh, now some people are describing as uh, almost a, uh, a new cold and hopefully not hot war uh, between the uh, Russian and American military establishments. On the regional level, we have a kind of new bipolarity that has taken root. And we've heard quite a lot about that today already. We have, roughly speaking, the Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah coalition with the backing not so far behind from Russia and maybe a little bit farther behind from China. And on the other side of the pole, we have something that's a little bit harder to define. Um, one might call it the Sunni alliance, although that doesn't quite capture, I think, the reality of it. And this, of course, includes states of the GCC, Saudi Arabia in particular, Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, and so forth. And the big power backers of that loose coalition are the United States and the European Union. Uh, and then finally, and perhaps most significantly, uh, on the domestic level, we've seen in the last four years the phenomenon of the Arab uprisings, a phenomenon which I think uh, we have not seen the last of, by the way, uh, a, uh, uh, an uprising that has uh, resulted in a very strong, vigorous, and even violent counter-revolution being mounted essentially by the GCC states, by the Saudis and the, and the uh, Emirates in, in particular. Uh, and so that's one aspect of the domestic struggle that's going on. Those that want to see major change, game changers, and those that absolutely do not want to see that, those that want to maintain the system of authoritarian monarchies and uh, to uh, uh, maintain, in addition, their historic uh, friendly connections with the United States. And then, if that weren't bad enough, we have the Daesh phenomenon. I was organizing a study group uh, at Harvard last spring on the crisis of the Arab state. And one of the presentations that uh, we arranged for uh, by uh, Yazid Saig from, uh, from the Carnegie Center in Beirut was called ISIS, a state in waiting question mark. And we can question that, but I think it is probably not questionable to uh, posit that the durability, the longevity, the stability, and the legitimacy 
of the existing state system in the area that we're concerned with today is problematical. And one of the questions that maybe some of our panelists will address uh, is how is it that this Daesh phenomenon, which has both military, political, administrative, and above all, apparently, ideological clout, how is it that it persists and how is it that it uh, 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 appears to be such a, a, a major threat to almost everybody? The Daesh phenomenon has hijacked the center, the Arab center, and we're, we're now uh, uh, waiting to see what will happen next. And to answer that question, we will uh, introduce the several distinguished members of this panel. We will start with Dr. Paul Salem. I will not introduce them because uh, their biographies are in your program. We'll begin with Dr. Paul Salem from the Middle East Institute. Uh, he will be followed by Mr. Basil Karkour, who will be speaking about legal aspects. Uh, uh, Mr. Ilias, Dr. Ilias Samo, who is a professor from Aleppo, from uh, the, the Syrian University in Aleppo. Um, and then we will have uh, a, common, a, a commentary by Mr. Charles Shidyak, who is the president of the Republican Reform Party uh, in Lebanon. We'll begin with Dr. Salem, please. Thank you. I forgot. I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> How could I? And the piece de résistance is our final speaker, Dr. Judith Yaffe, who has some pointed remarks to make about U.S. policy. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you, Professor Hudson, and uh, thank you, Dr. Anthony, for organizing this important uh, uh, conference. Uh, Professor Hudson is sort of the dean of Levantine studies for many of us uh, who were his uh, uh, students for many, many years, and I, he gave a really excellent introduction and background to the complexity and the various projects that have overrun this part, uh, this very unstable part of the Middle East that is currently uh, facing its, again, sort of one of its most severe periods periods of instability. Uh, this is a region where the states have collapsed, the hard states, the Ba'athist state in Iraq, the Ba'athist state in Syria, uh, where the nations uh, or the political communities have fallen apart into their ethnic and sectarian components. Uh, this is a part of the region uh, where regional order has disintegrated. It used to be part of an Arab order. It is now contested, obviously, between Iran, between the Arab states, and to a large degree between Turkey and a Kurdish component as well. So a region that is uh, trying to figure out uh, what its identity and what its structure is. This is a region also which has seen a tremendous great power surging and ebbing. The U.S. raged into the region in 2003, toppling the Iraqi government. And in a sense, the Obama administration is raging out of the region, creating vacuums as some of them uh, in the past 
panels before us mentioned, creating also uh, shifts and instabilities. And it's a region where a few weeks ago Russia, after an absence of four decades, has come storming back into the Middle East with aircrafts, bases, tanks, uh, and great rhetoric. So also great shift in, in its position internationally. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, long civil wars, some only four years old, some, some much older, based on sectarian and identity politics. Uh, and we have seen, with the collapse of state, the rise of non-state actors, whether it's ISIS or, or other groups uh, elsewhere. Uh, if we look at the, some, some of the countries uh, and get some sort of more definition, uh, Lebanon in a way uh, collapsed early, as we know. Uh, the state collapsed in the mid-70s. The country sank into sectarian civil war, and that civil war went on for 15 years. Some of the elements of the dynamics of Lebanon are being replayed in Iraq, are being replayed in Syria. Whether the same paths to get out of these civil wars and to reach some kind of stability will take as long as it took in Lebanon, which was a full 15 years. Whether it can be done more quickly remains to be seen. Uh, Lebanon went through uh, many years of civil war, but it also through, went through periods of de-escalation. People could live throughout a period when there wasn't a central government, something that we're not able to see in Syria today, uh, but something that might be of interest. Also, Lebanon began negotiations internally uh, from the very beginning of the, of the civil war. Maybe it took 14, 15 years to get to the end of it, but internal negotiations were a long part of, of the politics of that conflict and enabled an agreement at the end to be hammered out. But let's not forget that the Lebanese civil war ended only at a moment of international confluence, the end of the Cold War, uh, and certain international and regional dynamics that enabled the outside players in Lebanon to impose or to push for an end to that civil war. There might be lessons in that experience, things to avoid, things to learn from, um, uh, but certainly Lebanon, I think, has been through what Syria and Iraq are going through uh, now in many, many ways. Uh, Iraq and Syria, very different stories. Iraq's state was, was broken from the outside by the U.S. invasion, but fell into uh, uh, um, internal disintegration and elements of an ethnic and sectarian division uh, and uh, a civil war and insurgency and the rise of radical groups. Uh, Iraq, however, has a, a you know, constitutional order, has a certain internal uh, process of uh, negotiation. That gives it a better chance of survival and reconstruction certainly than Syria has. Uh, we've all followed the ups and downs after the U.S. left in 2011, Prime Minister Maliki's policies and now Prime Minister Ibadi's attempts to try to keep that country uh, together. But indeed, there's much more politics in Iraq than there is in Syria. Uh, the Syrian state collapsed effectively for internal reasons uh, rather than external, but uh, similar to Lebanon and uh, and, uh, and Iraq. In the Levant, where you do have strong sectarian and ethnic identities, unlike, let's say, in Egypt or some other parts, or Tunisia or other parts of the Middle East, you saw the society in Syria break down along similar lines, particularly after the regime refused to really launch a serious political process. Uh, and here we are in the midst of a very destructive sectarian uh, and uh, civil war that has also led to the rise of non state actors, uh, ISIS 
this is sort of the most well-known of them, but Jubhat al-Nusra, Ahrar al-Sham, many, many other groups. Uh, Hezbollah and others coming from, uh, from Lebanon to support uh, the regime. Unlike in Iraq and in Lebanon, there has been no domestic negotiation, no political process uh, in Syria four and a half years into the conflict. Uh, and that, uh, to my mind, uh, certainly is among the many things that bodes ill for the future uh, of that conflict. Uh, in the midst of this sort of Levantine civil war that's, that we're living through, uh, one scenario might be that at the end of these long civil wars, people get tired and they settle for some power-sharing agreement, decentralized government, uh, uh, and so on, something similar to the Lebanese model, which perhaps won't be that, uh, would not be that difficult. In that scenario, the, the basic borders of old Iraq and old Syria will be preserved, but in effect, there would be uh, sort of internal cantons or areas, a Kurdish area, an Alawi area, and so forth, uh, with very decentralized power-sharing agreements. That could be one future uh, for the Levant. Another future that we might uh, see taking place in Syria is that these wars might lead to the solidification of new borders and effectively uh, new states. Whether they're officially recognized in the UN or not uh, is, is a different matter, but uh, we might indeed see the end of a, you know, an actual Syria or an actual Iraq uh, and the beginning of, of new state or, or semi-state formations. I think we've already begun to see that with the fall of Mosul and the division of Syria. Uh, whether that becomes a long-term and permanent feature of the Levant, we'll have to see. ISIS, to my mind, is a symptom of the collapse of political order, not a cause. Uh, after the state collapsed in Syria, non-state actors uh, came to play an increasing role in Syria. One of those non-state actors is Al-Qaeda, which then uh, rebranded as ISIS. ISIS is not the only non-state actor in the region. Uh, uh, Hezbollah is a long-standing non-state actor. There are many other militias uh, in Syria. The Houthis are very powerful. Al-Qaeda is very powerful. So I think ISIS is the symptom of a, a phenomenon in which state and when state order collapses and you have ungovernable spaces, all kinds of non-state actors emerge. Uh, ISIS is only one of them and has maybe the most effective YouTube and social media uh, policy and is the most shocking, but as a basic non-state actor that organizes, raises taxes uh, and things of that nature, it is not altogether that unique. And the cause of its ability to rise was the prior collapse of the state, so the long-term solution to my mind is the attempt to reconstruct state power uh, at some point. Uh, to reconstruct state power requires both a political deal and military force. In Iraq, there is a potential pathway to a political way back for Iraq. Uh, the Sunnis are part of the constitutional system. There is an attempt in this government to you know, find a way to have re-inclusive and effective central inclusion uh, in Baghdad uh, and to encourage Sunnis to you know, be more part of the central government and so on, uh, and part of the Iraqi national project. It's still problematic, it's difficult, it hasn't gone very well, but at least there's a potential pathway there. Uh, in Iraq as well, there is a military pathway uh, forward to confront ISIS uh, to some degree. There's the Peshmerga forces, there's the Iraqi National Army, there is uh, the Hashd al-Shaabi, the big Shiite militias, uh, and there's the potential 
responsible for including more Sunni groups, whether it's a National Guard or through some other mechanism. Uh, so one can imagine over time, one month or uh, one year or something of that nature, that ISIS could be pushed back. Um, in Syria, I, I see no such uh, potential. There is no internal political process. Uh, there are no ground forces that are available really seriously for the fight against ISIS. Assad's forces are mainly uh, deployed and engaged fighting off uh, the non-ISIS rebels uh, in the north and in the south. Uh, and uh, the non-ISIS rebels are largely busy confronting Assad and the regime. Uh, and until that confrontation is resolved, there simply are no ground, serious ground forces available other than the Kurds, who will only fight effectively to protect mainly their areas to confront ISIS. So I don't see ISIS in Syria uh, going away uh, anytime soon, nor do I see a, any serious will for a political way forward uh, in Syria. I think the Assad regime and Iran and Hezbollah, uh, their interest is to solidify, protect, and uh, a, the Syrian rump state, which is the capital, the corridor to the west. Uh, I think they realize that that's as much as they can manage. Uh, there's very little interest to my mind to reach out either to reconquer areas that they lost or to really seek a major new deal with the Sunni majority. So I think Syria unfortunately has moved uh, somewhat decisively into division. I think the recent Russian intervention, despite what Russian intentions might be, solidifies that. Assad now doesn't feel at all the need to compromise. The Iranians are relaxed that the regime is no longer under, you know, with the Russians there, they feel, they feel better about it. Uh, so I think what we might see is a solidification of those lines. I do expect they might attempt to take the town of Palmyra. Uh, that's probably would be sort of a public relations coup that you take one major town from ISIS. Uh, it is somewhat close to regime lines. I think that will be about it. Um, that leaves the question, what does Turkey, the GCC, and possibly the U.S. do with the rest of Syria? Uh, uh, the areas controlled by all these various mainly Sunni militias, if they're not in, uh, effectively going to be able to defeat a regime that is now part of this major alliance, what is the fate of those uh, regions uh, going to be? Uh, I was recently in Tehran and I was struck by some of the things I heard there. Uh, you know, statements like they will do anything to defend Damascus and Baghdad and they do, will do nothing to confront or defeat ISIS per se. In other words, their interest is in rump states that are very close to them uh, rather than in some, you know, united Syria, united Iraq where they have much, uh, much less control. They are very comfortable with the new Russian presence. As others have indicated, I think this Russian presence uh, is historic in the sense that it's an alliance of convenience, Iran and Russia. A strong, you know, strong Russian relations with Tehran, strong Russian relations now with Syria, uh, growing relations with Iraq. And I think the model might be that the Russians, as they are doing in Syria, will be rebuilding the Syrian army according to their, you know, sort of specifications and so on. They might eventually start doing the same in Iraq. And between the Russians and Iranians, we might have a model in the Levant similar to what we have in Lebanon, which is a limited national army and a major pro-Iranian 
militia that sort of keeps an eye on things. That's sort of like the old Ba'athist model or the old Soviet model that you have state institutions, but you have a party that's armed and capable of, uh, of intervening or controlling how things go. Um, uh, in ending, I would say, as you could probably uh, surmise, that I'm not uh, optimistic, uh, certainly in the short or medium term. I think the refugee uh, streams and crisis will stay with us for a long time. I myself am from Lebanon. Lebanon hosts 1.5 million refugees. Uh, Lebanon and Jordan, the small countries in this region, have managed uh, to survive so far, but they are under very enormous stress, and those are things we can talk about if you wish later in the question and answer period. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next uh, speaker is uh, Mr. Basil Corker. He is a lawyer, and uh, I understand he's going to have some things to say about the role of the United Nations and the question of refugees, among other things. Uh, we're asking all of our speakers to be as concise as possible because we have a full panel, so 10 minutes would be just about right. Thanks. Uh, and I know the, uh, no one wants to end their day with part of that being hearing from a lawyer, um, so I'll try and be concise. And I will take somewhat of a uh, narrow view or a short view um, uh, to focus on the legal issues and some of their political implications. Um, and of course, I should say, nothing I say here is to be taken as legal advice, and none of this necessarily reflects the views of my clients. Uh, in my law practice, and my Syria-related law practice in particular, and any other lawyers who are here who work on Syria can sympathize with this, or else correct me, um, I, uh, I encounter persons who generally have two types of problems, those who are trying to get out of Syria and those who are trying to get into Syria. Those seeking egress include emigrants of all kinds, asylees, refugees, families, businesses, assets, which, by the way, are stuck in this sort of legal void where you have a country embargoed from the outside, suffering from capital flight and lack of liquidity on the inside, and on top of that, a lack of financial and consular services available to Syrians and their families wherever they are. Um, many banks, even in the U.S., by the way, are having tremendous, uh, many Syrians in the U.S. are having tremendous difficulty accessing even basic financial services here in the U.S. Uh, and then among those seeking ingress to the country, you could say, are NGOs, medical associations, large and small contractors, and others seeking to implement badly needed activities, mostly in the humanitarian sector. This includes delivery of food and medicine through more traditional means, but also the provision of medical services and actual construction and operation of humanitarian and medical facilities in the middle of an active conflict zone. In a way, uh, these legal, legal developments reflect this push and pull dynamic, uh, though granted only at the margins so far. And as I'll describe briefly in a few moments, this also is reflected in the international and inter-Syrian political negotiation process. Take, for example, sanctions. Of course, the U.S. and other Western countries have strict compliance regimes for things like economic sanctions, export controls, bribery, corruption, and money laundering. In the case of Syria, U.S. and allied sanctions authorities have sought to tighten these laws against certain factors actions, both among the Syrian government and its supporters, as well as among extremist groups, uh, while at the same time promulgating regulations and issuing licenses designed to relax such restrictions or carve out exceptions for activities in support of some of the humanitarian activity I mentioned earlier when carried out by non-governmental and intergovernmental organizations. 
Similarly, the UN has, over the course of the past three years or so, taken steps to pass resolutions, those rare resolutions that actually find consensus by the entire Security Council, to authorize the delivery of humanitarian aid and assistance across all of Syria's international borders and even across conflict lines. Another instance is the refugee crisis as it relates to Europe, the debate among EU members about how to handle it in a way that is both secure and humanitarian in nature and legal. Of course, all that is the push, the black letter law. The pull is the reality that all this is taking place still in the middle of a war zone. Sure, these international laws apply, and for U.S. actors, the U.S. laws certainly apply to those delivering the humanitarian assistance, and one day presumably they'll apply to international companies conducting redevelopment activities, let's say the good guys. But the other guys, the extremists, the warlords, the militias, the bombers, uh, there's a lack of rule of law that applies to these actors. This lack of rule of law, this vacuum of authority, along with what seem to be at best remote possibilities, of accountability and justice for those committing some rather egregious offenses help incubate not only the conflict but also the general lawlessness at the expense often of innocent civilians who flee in order to avoid choosing between barrel bombs on one hand and extremist brutality on the other. And then again, recall that the refugee crisis did not just begin last month. Four million refugees had already left Syria to bordering countries, mostly Turkey, but also Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq. Uh, but there's something that jars the system when 250,000 refugees make their way to European borders and different countries take divergent approaches to it. I think it's important to have this background, uh, obtuse as it may sound, when thinking about the UN's role in the end game here, which I was asked to discuss. Recently, the UN envoy has elaborated a sort of bifurcated yet parallel approach to negotiations, again reflecting the international process on one hand and the on-the-ground Syrian reality on the other. At one level, he envisions international contact groups, which would be groupings of countries, at first the U.S. and Russia, but then expanding to include important regional and perhaps European participants, which would attempt to discuss paths to de-escalation as well as the parameters of an ultimate political settlement. At the same time, secondly, he proposes inter-Syrian working groups, which would bring Syrians from the government and the opposition together to discuss, and here, he says, at the Syrian government's request, he emphasizes in a non-legally binding way, to prepare the ground for the third step, which would be direct negotiations between the parties like those that took place in Geneva in 2014. Um, as a note, there are four working groups that are supposed to convene in Geneva uh, under this uh, construct, one to discuss safety and protection, one to discuss political and legal issues, one to discuss military security and counterterrorism, and the fourth to discuss the continuity of public services, reconstruction, and development. Uh, first, on the contact groups, these international groupings, it's one thing to formalize a process, but at the same time we know well that discussions are already taking place between the U.S. and Russia, and that there have been recent visits and interactions reported at high levels between and among U.S., Russia, France, the U.K., Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, Qatar, and Iran, among others. Uh, not all with each other, but sometimes in bilateral or in small multilateral contexts. We witnessed this uh, ourselves at the uh, UN General Assembly a few weeks ago in New York where many of these group meetings began to occur. Uh, these countries, all of them, have real investments and interests in the outcomes of the Syrian conflict and the day-to-day -day developments of it. Second, and in contrast, the inter-Syrian working groups have so far not progressed uh, and have not yet achieved acceptance among either the main opposition coalition, uh, among many of the armed groups, and only in a very limited way, as I alluded to earlier, by the Syrian government. The Geneva consultations, which the UN envoy uh, called for earlier this year, encountered similar objections, and ultimately it mostly fizzled.
Third, this idea of a Geneva III conference on Syria. What this reflects, and I think it's accurate, is that at some point to contain all this chaos, and by the way, this is regardless of unity of the, of the country or division, but at some point to contain all this chaos, to reduce the conditions causing mass migration, to take steam out of the sails of extremists, to alleviate human suffering, there must be negotiations and ultimately an agreement, at least a framework among Syrians themselves that would address the underlying grievances of the millions of Syrians, which have not yet been addressed, who want to see meaningful political and economic reforms, transition, and peace begin to take hold in their country. At the Geneva II negotiations last year, the position of the opposition was that there is an internationally accepted basis for such a resolution, that being the Geneva communique of 2012, including a pertinent Security Council resolutions and international humanitarian standards and human rights laws incorporated therein. The opposition presented a set of principles, which, by the way, it had elaborated on multiple occasions in different forms before Geneva II and has done repeatedly since Geneva II. Uh, the most recent one I've seen was just yesterday. Um, and there shouldn't necessarily be much disagreement on the principles or parameters underlying this proposal. Cessation of violence, a civil state, protection of all Syrians' rights, including non-majority ethnic and religious groups, uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty, humanitarian access, release of detainees, full participation by women, continuity of state institutions with some key reforms, freedoms of speech and association, rejection of violent extremism, national dialogue, local reconciliation, and so forth. And we know from our own communications uh, that there is general acceptance of these principles uh, as defining the parameters of a negotiation process. But of course, in the opposition's view, this process begins with the establishment of a transitional governing body, which is laid out in the Geneva Communique, which would assume all executive powers, including authority over the military and security apparatuses, which would govern the country and set the stage for free and fair national elections within a specified range of time. This view is backed by Security Council Resolution 2118, as well as by repeated statements from major world and regional powers. Moreover, the Geneva Communique calls for the formation of this transitional governing body on the basis of mutual consent. That's a key clause. It means each side has a veto on participants in this transitional period in this transitional body during the transitional period. It is pursuant to this clause, although, and this is important, it's not specifically called for in the opposition's Geneva II proposal, but operationally, that the Syrian president and certain others would be excluded from having any role in the transitional governing body. Under the same clause, of course, certain members of the opposition, therefore, would also be excluded, and implicitly, the opposition has accepted this uh, and, and, and in practice, this kind of process should tend to allow moderate voices and moderate nationalist leaders to rise to the top during a transitional period. As things have evolved since Geneva II, unless there is some international agreement broker, this position by the Syrian National Coalition is unlikely to change in a Geneva III conference. Uh, ultimately, the goal of these initiatives is to stop the violence, or at least that part of the violence which relates to the conflict between the Syrian government and the mainstream Syrian opposition. And then maybe some new progress could be made toward defeating extremists and restoring stability. And I know this sounds very aspirational. Like I said, there's a broad, tense, and tenuous international dynamic that must be settled first or simultaneously, at least as it relates to Syria, before any of this can have any modicum of reality to it. But never doubt, and I can say this, that behind the scenes, even in, uh, at times of heightened uh, public tensions, uh, people are always talking. No one has cut anyone else off here. Even as Russian intervention hits civilians in modern in Syria, one must acknowledge that Russia has deep and embedded interest and influence in Syria, and any negotiations would need to take that into account. Uh, but some people are always trying. 
The UN envoy, for example, is in uh, Moscow today. Next, he'll come here to Washington. Uh, so all this is this is unrealistic right now, but that doesn't mean you stop talking. Sometimes you have to keep your nose down and keep preparing for the next phase whenever it may come and in whatever context. And to affect uh, these goals, there are at least three policy objectives that need to be pursued. And here I focus specifically on the Syrian conflict and the Syrian-Syrian negotiations. One, pressure both sides to come to the table ready for earnest peace talks. Two, relieve the humanitarian suffering inside Syria. And three, humanely and legally host or resettle Syrian refugees. Uh, experts much wiser than me have proposed numerous tactics to try and effectuate these goals. Uh, I'll sum up just a few of the following uh, to finish. Uh, number one, to stop the barrel bombs. Uh, the barrel bombs are some of the crudest and most destructive weapons being used in Syria. They're inaccurate, they're indiscriminate, they're dumb bombs. They cause destruction not only to the locations where they're dropped, but the ripples lead to migration in other parts of the country where people fear, people fear the barrels may be coming next. As Ambassador Fred Hoffa said, there are ways to throw dust in the gears of the aircraft which drop these bombs without necessarily a no-fly zone. That would be presumably a U.S. or U.S.-supported initiative, and who knows, perhaps it's already been tried. But now there is even more reason for the Syrian government to stop using barrel bombs than ever before, and that is the fact that they no longer on their face even serve the claimed strategic purposes of fighting the opposition now that the Syrian government has the Russian Air Force acting on its behalf. With all the claimed precision and technical capabilities of the Russian Air Force now actively supporting the fight against Syrian moderates and extremists alike, the last even facial justification for using these barrel bombs is gone. Second, increase the humanitarian aid and access inside Syria. There are ways to increase the aid and access to internally displaced Syrians before they flee the country and become refugees. There are ways to make certain areas safer, to effectively pull certain small areas outside of the zone of conflict. There has to be a focus on that buffer between internal displacement and mass exodus. Three, increase and accelerate refugee resettlement in the U.S., as well as increase the use of other tools uh, in the legal system, such as humanitarian parole, to ensure that Syrians can go through the vetting and intake process more quickly with relatively low cost and posing no security threat to the U.S. Fourth, there's more that can be done to encourage reform on the, with the, within the opposition to bring different groups together to increase the inclusiveness and reward such actions with international, increased international recognition and further political isolation of the Syrian government. The national coalition is not perfect. Reform is needed. They know that. To make it more inclusive, more reflective, and structurally more nimble to allow those who want to seek peace to seek it uh, and not be held back. But the coalition does maintain significant international political capital, and that presents an opportunity both to incentivize and reward peace-saving activity by the opposite in general. On the other side of that, uh, fifth, there could be a mechanism for accountability established, an international or, or internationally backed Syrian tribunal um, that begins to inject this conversation of potential accountability and justice in the future. You can intensify sanction activity against uh, the Syrian government and against extremists, and also uh, unfreeze assets to be used for humanitarian purposes. Um, another, I know I've exceeded my time, uh, but I've also tried to squeeze in some policy recommendations, Dr. Anthony, so uh, thank you. Thank you very much. For, for a very a very thoughtful and helpful presentation. We turn now uh, to uh, Dr. Elias Samu, who uh, comes to us and quite recently from Syria. And uh, so we look forward to your reflections. Yes, uh, I'm glad. I'm happy to be here. I was very happy when Dr. Anthony invited me. I've had uh, well, I have been working with Dr. Anthony for the last 25 years. This morning he commented 
on the National Council and its great work in the Middle East, and he gave an example of Syria, the program in Syria that lasted for several years, and there were more than 400 people, students and faculty members, Malones, who came to Syria and spent few weeks there, and, and it was a very successful program. It was a program in which those 400 plus, when they came to Syria, they were American ambassador to, ambassadors to Syria, and they left a great, a great positive image of, of, of America. And they, when they went back, and I followed many of them when they went back to, came back to America, and I lectured at various of their universities, they also became ambassadors for Syria and America. And, and I was involved in that program. Uh, with Dr. Anthony, and we were very happy for it, and I wish we, had, we were able to continue that program, and Dr. Anthony has had this program, exchange program, with, in the Middle East with the Arab states, but he made a point of mentioning the Syrian program in particular this morning because it was very, very successful. And thank you, and uh, Dr. Anthony, I hope we someday, someday we'll be back to Syria follow, uh, uh, continuing that. Uh, as Dr. Uh, Hudson mentioned, I came, back, I came from Syria two weeks ago. I have lived in Syria the last 25 years, other than traveling abroad for lectures or conferences. I have lived continuously in Syria for the last 20 some years, 25 or so. The last five years I have been in Syria. I'm not about to leave Syria. I leave Syria only to attend conferences in Europe, uh, meeting with the opposition. And I've been meeting with the opposition the last two, three years continuously. And this is uh, coming over here is temporary because I'm going back to Syria in four or five days. Now. When Dr. Anthony invited me to speak, I decided that I was not going to sit down and write a speech. I decided I'll come stand here and speak to you as a, although I'm a faculty member, I'm professor of international relations at American universities and Syrian universities, I wanted to come here and just speak my heart, not my mind, my heart, think out loud, and tell you how I feel. And I reflect in my conversation here, and it's conversation, not lecture or presentation, uh, reflect the attitude, I think, of most of the Syrians, irrespective of their ethnic or sectarian or religious background. Uh, Syria is damaged. Syria is in troubles. My my best description for Syria today, and I have described Syria this way the last two, three years, is that it has become a swamp, at least parts of it, if not all of it, a swamp with vicious beasts tearing each other apart and giving birth to new beasts in a jungle where there's no law and order. And what triggered that what triggered that, at least we Syrians feel, that what triggered this or provided the, the spark for the explosion in Syria was what's known, misnamed, the Arab Spring. I wrote about this two, three years ago. They asked me to write about it. And I said, this is, might have, it might have started as an Arab Spring originally. But it was kidnapped by the Islamists, and it was turned into an Islamic spring, Arab fall, 
and Christian winter and a brutal Siberian winter. Very unfortunate. And what I'd like the Arabs to do, if they can, if they have the guts and uh, the, the desire and determination, and they have the capability, to reclaim the Arab Spring from the Islamists who turned it into an Islamic Spring. And I wish the Arabs, the Arabs will, will hear that, because when the Arab Spring started in late 2010, early 2011, it was a genuinely Arab Spring with great hopes for a better future for the Arabs. But unfortunately, it was kidnapped. Now, Syria is damaged very badly. You hear on television the infrastructure being destroyed, the economic, the social fabric is being destroyed, the economy is destroyed. But I'll give you two three specific examples that constitute the greatest threat to Syria in the future. The first example is, you know, you all know that, that what moves nations forward to modernize is the elite. It's not the farmer or the worker. It's the elite. And with all due respect to farmers and workers, and my father was a farmer also, but it's the elite. And the unfortunate thing today in Syria the elite have left. I'm talking about the economic, industrial, trade, professional elites, doctors and dentists and engineers and, 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 and teachers. They have, they have left Syria, which is a tragedy. I don't mean they all of them have left, but substantial percentage of them have left, whereby sometimes very difficult to get to a hospital or get a doctor. Uh, that's, that's very sad. The other part, the other damage, is the fact that also the Christian community, which is to a great degree an elitist community, great part of it is highly educated, well off, very loyal, very committed to Syria, they also have left. And that's these two elements, having left, it's really, it's really very unfortunate for Syria. The other point, the other, the other tragic thing also, is the fact that in Syria, once I did a study for the Ministry of Education in Syria, and I told them, you have to build a school every day in Syria to keep the level of education in Syria, that's not that good. A school every day, that means 365 schools every year. Now, after five years of war in Syria, not only not a single school was built in which during the five years which would have built 2,000 schools, two to 3,000 schools have been destroyed. And therefore, we have now students, young people, the young generation, the future generation, the future elite for Syria that will lead Syria forward in the future, have been without schools for the last five years. Millions of them have been without schools for the last five years. And if this continues, we will have a future generation of t totally illiterate. That's tragic. Now, going back to Syria. Uh, Syria, when you talk to the people in Syria, you hear different story than you hear it from outside. For example, what Dr. Paul Salem said, and he reflects the attitude of people on the outside. In, in, in other words, that there is no future for Syria, that there's no possibility of maintaining its unity, its sovereignty, that there's no possibility that, uh, uh, that uh, it could Come, become what it was in the past, not in terms of political structure, but in terms of the geography. The Syrian inside, 
and I'm one of them. You hardly ever hear this notion of breaking up Syria, this notion of dividing Syria. Even the group, the group that's most likely that would declare independence from Syria is the Kurdish group in northeast Syria. And I live with them, I grew up with them, I, I spoke Kurdish before I spoke Arabic. And you ask many of the Kurds, they tell you we are Kurds in Syria. We are Kurdish Syrians. And therefore this notion of Syria breaking up, now it's possible. But let me tell you something. The Syrian has a sense of pride in himself, great pride that you don't feel it until, unless you are Syrian. Dr. Hassan said Syria, also known as Sham, also known as Levant, also known as the, the Fertile Crescent, also known as the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, also known as Mesopotamia. I mean, these are important terms to describe one single country, and then you talk about it, it, it breaking up. Not only that, but also Syria is in existence in every ancient history book. It's, uh, it's in existence in the Old Testament, New Testament, and the Quran. It's in existence, uh, it, it contains the two oldest continuously inhabited cities, Damascus and, Arab, and Aleppo, and so on, so on. And it's not easy for the Syrians to forget the notion of Syria with all these historical, cultural, uh, fantastic attributes. It's not going to be that. However, having said that, we are facing serious problems. And I'll tell you these problems, and I'm thinking out loud. Uh, and these problems, not only Syria is facing them, the Arab Islamic world is facing a big problem. Now, when we talk about Syria, of course, keep one thing in mind, that one of the victims in Syria is the truth. One of the victims in Syria is the truth. In Syria, when you talk about Syria, whoever it is, from Obama to, to anybody else, they, it's, it reminds me of the, of, the, of the story of the elephant and the four blind men. Everybody who talks about Syria sees it in that way, uh, and a blind man looking at the elephant. Having, speaking of the elephant, there's another saying about elephants. It says that when the elephants fight, Oh, I have to move fast. You have to give me a few more minutes, John. I came from Syria, all the way from Syria here. And I deserve a few more minutes. Okay, tell him. Tell him. Okay. Okay. Uh, 18 hours flight from Syria, and not very few people would come from Syria to America, believe me, to give a lecture and go back to Syria. So take that into... Okay. There are... Look, so we talk about... Another saying about the elephants says when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. There are seven elephants fighting today in Syria, and Syria is the grass suffering. Actually, they are not elephants, because the elephants in their fight could be decent. But these seven crises, seven earthquakes that have hit Syria, and Syria has become the epicenter, ground zero for these seven conflict crises, is, is un un unimaginable. These are the following. I'll just list them. There is a historic Islamic fight since the 10th century between jihad, you know what jihad is, jihad and al-ishtihad, ishtihad is thinking, between the sword and the pen. 
and has continued for the last 10 centuries and has come up to the surface now. Daesh has the jihad with the, with the, with the, the sword and the thinking Arabs, it's Muslims, the, the reformists, the modern Arabs uh, have the pen, but the pen is cowardly when it faces the, 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 the sword. The second struggle, the second elephant in, in, in the Middle East, in Syria, where it's located, is the Shi'i Sunni. The third one is the struggle between the Islamic nation and Arab nation. Islamic nation, Al-Umma Al-Islamiyya, has no border. The whole universe is border. The first thing Daesh did when they took over Mosul and Damascus, and Mosul and, uh, and uh, Raqqa in Syria, they erased the border between Syria and, and Iraq. The fourth one is struggle within Arabism, between Pan-Arabism and statism. Syria has its own interests, Egypt has its own interests, Jordan has its own interests, and there is Pan-Arabism. The fourth one, or fifth one, is the historic struggle of of the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire and the Arab Empire. There's a struggle there that's historic and a new empire has been added, the Judaic Empire. And just think, four historic empires who don't have goodwill to each other and have occupied land from each other are fighting in Syria. Uh, the fifth one, the sixth one is the new civil, the new, the new Cold War, the new Cold War. And in, we, we, we used to lecture 30, 40, 20, 30 years ago about the old Cold War. Some of us would say that the Syrian-Turkish border is a demarcation between Warsaw and NATO. And that demarcation has come back now. Turkey with NATO and Syria with Warsaw is no more Warsaw, but with Russia. Okay, and the final one, the fifth one, the seventh one, is the, the Syrian-Israeli conflict. And Israel has, has a sneaky finger inside Syria in the troubles. Okay, now let me, let me just finish by saying, let me just finish by saying, what are the options that we have now? Now today, one of the speakers mentioned, uh, I'm trying to, uh, to remember one of the speakers, yeah, uh, the Ambassador Freeman said that in Syria, America has three interests. Sure, the, the uh, terrorism, doing something about refugees, the flow of refugees from Syria over, over, over to Europe. And, 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 and the third one, uh, I'm trying to think because Dr. Anthony, when he put, okay. And one of them is, is Assad, okay? Now, you can't compare the fight for terrorism and its importance and the, 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 the threat of the refugees which have created the notion of Islamophobia in, in, in Europe and the third one is the, the, the war the containing Russia now in Europe containing it or is it going to be containment or detente or cooperation we don't know. These three objectives for Mr. Obama. Now I have talked with President Bashar about what I think and I would wish I could talk with Mr. Obama and tell Mr. Obama in decision making in decision, we, have, we always have prioritized our interests. If you were to prioritize your interests in Syria, fighting terrorism has to be first. Uh, refugees to, to Europe uh, and the threats has to also be down second. Dealing with the Russians have to be third. Bashar al-Assad is not a big deal. He, he really isn't. He's here today, to, he, not here tomorrow. You have more important issues to deal with. These three issues concentrate on them, sir. Finally, and the final thing is that, look, uh, I, I, I have... I have a mission, but this mission that I have is the mission of all the Syrians, and the mission is as follows. Our mission is Democracy. to maintain, no, not democ to maintain 
serious unity, sovereignty, unity, and territorial integrity. All of us. Unity, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. Thank you. The second mission also is to maintain Eastern Christianity. Well, I'm one of those Eastern Christianity because our roots are there. I have really a lot more to say, but I think he's going to throw me out of the out of here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now we turn to uh, Mr. Charles Shidiak. Uh, who uh, I think is going to talk to us about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Members of the Royal Families, Excellencies, Members of Congress, Officers of the American Armed Forces, ladies and gentlemen. The gentleman before me spoke about Syria and Iraq and so on. So I think it's best to give you a short history of what they are talking about. Because if you don't know the history, you don't know the roots of the problem, then you wouldn't know how to solve it. History books confirm that on May 19, 1916, Britain and France concluded the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Most people were surprised that this agreement divided the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire into five new countries before the First, war, First World War even ended. The First World War, everybody knows, ended in 1918. So, <clears throat> however, everyone expected the sick man of Europe, which is the Ottoman Empire, to lose the war, and it is normal for a country to lose territory if it is defeated, especially if the territory in question was an occupied land for 402 years from 1516 to 1918. 402 years the Ottomans ruled the Arabs. The two people who concluded this agreement, a Mr. Sykes and a Mr. Picot, were sure that Turkey is losing the war and their appointment as two level bureaucrats from their foreign ministries gave the agreement a low level of importance in the series of events at that time of history. This, this agreement also conf conflicted with the agreements the British made with the Sharif of Mecca, who was Sharif Hussein bin Ali al-Hashimi, who rallied the Arabs to rebel against the Turks. I'm sure you all remember Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. Sharif Hussein later complained about the division of the eastern part of the, Arab, of the Arab world to five countries, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Palestine. That was the Sykes-Picot Agreement. 
but was eventually compensated by the British creating the Kingdom of Jordan and the Kingdom of Iraq for his two sons to rule. Over the years we heard many complaints from the later dictators of Syria and Iraq complaining about Sykes-Picot, dreaming of the fact that they could be the leaders of this whole area. If we are to analyze today the agreement of 1916, we can confirm that the Sykes-Picot agreement was an excellent agreement, negotiated by the British and the French with good intentions to create a number of secular democratic states in the Levant after a long Islamic dictatorship by the Turks. I just mentioned 402 years dictatorship, Islamic dictatorship by the Turks. Britain and France built schools and universities in the Sykes-Picot countries, established democratic institutions with the separation of powers between the judiciary, legislative and executive powers in all five countries. The Hashemites ruled Iraq and Jordan with justice and provided security and the rule of law, developed major industries in Iraq and provided wealth through the Iraqi Petroleum Company called IPC until 1958. The British also provided democratic institutions, schools and universities in Palestine and Jordan, whereby the Palestinians had a higher standard of living than Lebanon and Syria at that time. The French also expanded the Jesuit University in Beirut that was originally established in 1875 and encouraged the Americans to develop their university to a secular university that changed its name in 1920 from the Syrian Protestant College to the American University of Beirut. The Syrian Protestant College was originally established in 1866 as an American Baptist missionary school. In brief, the French can take credit for establishing the first republics in the Arab world in Syria and Lebanon and their mandate encouraged the people to change their loyalty to the state rather than to their religious identity. Knowing that the thinkers of the Arab world who rebelled against the Ottomans in the mid-19th century in a movement called the Arab Awakening or the Arab Renaissance were Western-oriented, attached to the secular principles of the American and French revolutions that called in their constitutions for equality under the law, freedom of the press, representative government, and loyalty to the nation-state. Democracy and stability prevailed in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq until the creation of Israel in 1948, when political turmoil started in the region. General Hosni Zaim made the first military coup in the region in Syria in 1949 and abolished the Democratic Republic the French established. Democracy was returned for a short period in, to Syria in 1959 after several military coups and then Syria lost again its democratic system of government to an alliance <coughs> with the Egyptian military dictatorship that took over power in Egypt 
from a semi-democracy under King Farouk in 1952 and established a military rule under Nasser who ruled Egypt for 18 years without a constitution. Democracy in Syria after the fall of its unity with Egypt in 1961 changed hands from one military dictator after another, each with a different individual agenda, trying to stay in power and keep his children. <coughs> the father of Bashar came in a coup in 1970, and his dictatorship was stable until 2011, when the people rebelled, asking for their freedom and the change to democracy. Hafiz al-Assad had died in the year 2000. Almost finished. Iraq, the other democracy established under Sykes-Picot, ruled by the Hashemites, was brutally ended by General Abdel Karim Qasim in 1958, and Iraq began to be ruled by one dictator after another until the fall of Saddam Hussein at the hands of the American army in 2003. America failed to organize a democratic system in Iraq as General Garner first planned turning over the country to a Mr. Bremer who in turn handed Iraq over to religious militias fighting for money and power thus virtually destroying today every democratic institution that was set up by the British between 1919 and 1958 in Iraq. So we failed. Lebanon and Jordan continued to respect somehow their institutions set by the Sykes-Picot Agreement and continued to survive after 100 years of struggle. In general, the Arabs in the Sykes-Picot nations were given an opportunity to rule democratically and join the civilized world. However, the founding fathers in Syria and Iraq failed to survive and allowed their institutions to be abolished and destroyed by the military that virtually destroyed these two countries as nation-states, bringing back religious bigotry and Daesh and Al-Qaeda to Jaysh al-Mahdi to Hizb al-Dawah to Jabhat al-Nusra to an Al-Await army supported by Russia and Iran, killing Sunnis with barrels of dynamites to Hezbollah in Lebanon and the world and Ansar Allah in Yemen, etc. The proof of success of Sykes-Picot as an assimilating system of government in Lebanon and Jordan is in its results. Lebanon has the 18 different religions, Jordan has ethnic Palestinians, Christians, Muslims, and several tribes. Jordan is lucky to have a wise Hashemite family that stayed in power against all odds, where King Hussein, after his grandfather was killed in a mosque, ruled by uniting his people, and escaped 17 attempts on his life. One of them, I was with him at the Dorchester Hotel in London in 1969, when someone put sulfuric acid in his nasal drops. Luckily, he discovered it. 
Lebanon had its problems over the years with Palestinian Fatah interfering in Lebanon. It was not a Lebanese revolution. It was the Palestinian interference who spent billions of dollars in Lebanon to take over power. So the Lebanon situation is totally different than Syria. Syria, the people rebelled. In Lebanon, there was no rebellion. So it was a Palestinian trying to take over the country. The future is now clear. For peace and stability to return to Syria, we need to go back to and set up a democratic system similar to what the French built in 1919, where the army stays in the hands of the minorities, the Christians and the Druzes, and then we, we turn over the country in a democratic system the overall executive power and legislature goes back to the educated Sunni families of Syria. The Azams, the Atassis, the Mudarris, the Al-Jabri, the Hananos, the Barazis, the Kekhyas, the Ammarbashi, the Panimis, the Idlbis, the Ibish, the Malas, and so on. When democracy is re-established in Syria, Bashar al-Assad disappeared from the scene automatically. He will, he will go. We don't have to tell, tell Assad to go. We just set up a democracy. He loses his power. He will lose his power through the new democratic system of government of Geneva 1 and 2. And in Iraq, for stability to return, democratic Arab nationalism has to re-establish itself through education and the ideology, forming a new secular political parties and convincing his beatitude, Sayyid Ali Sistani, to use his power to unite the Sunnis and the Shiites of Iraq under Arabism, and to take the initiative to visit Saudi Arabia and meet King Salman in Mecca, uniting the Arabs of Iraq again to face their historical enemies who are seeking to steal Iraq's wealth, dignity, freedom, and heritage. Arabism unites and religious bigotry divides. I'm finished. I just want to say what uh, Dr. Philip Hitti said in his book. The greatest Arab-American historian of the 20th century, Dr. Philip Hitti, wrote in his history book, History of Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine, published in 1951, that the Levant has turned today to the democratic principles of the West like it did turn westward after the days of Alexander the Great, 333 BC. But with today's Daesh philosophy in, in this 21st century, the dictatorship of Assad for half a century, and the rule of the Dawa party in Iraq, and that of Wilayat al-Faqih spreading from Iran since 1979, we are faced with the question, is the Levant actually moving westward or eastward? Or is it going back to the Middle Ages of the Ottoman Empire? Anyway, I'm finished talking. Thank you. God save the Arab world. And God bless American, French, and British democracies. And thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. And our final speaker is Dr. Judith Yaffe uh, from the National Defense University, uh, who has some things to say, I think, about American policy in this troubled part of the uh, Arab world.
I'm sorry. I know it's late. I know we're tired. You've heard a lot today, but you have to hear me. I will try to be very brief and focused, and I'm going to try to stick to a bit of reality as well. Um, many of you have heard me speak about Iraq. You've heard me speak about Iraq here in previous. Thank you for the opportunity, John. I've always enjoyed it, but I have to say also it was so much easier then. Uh, if you think about it, um, I wish I had better news for you. I wish I had good news for you. Perhaps if you come and listen to Ambassador Faley tomorrow morning, he will change your minds. He will have something opposite to say, although I don't think it will be that much different. But let's think a minute. Two years ago, Iraq was not in the grips of a civil war with ISIS. There was no Islamic caliphate. Arabs and Kurds were quarreling over selling oil. Who owns Kirkuk? And when, not if, the Kurds would declare independence. Sunni Arabs were complaining about disenfranchised political discrimination, rampant sectarianism encouraged by Iran, and Iraq's politicians of all sects and all parties spent most of their energies making war on each other while they tried to maneuver for greater power and control of the state and its resources. Electricity, water, basic human needs were neglected, were not being met by the state uh, uh, while this battle for power and wealth went on. The situation in Kurdistan was somewhat better in terms of availability of basic resources, but questions over political power, wealth distribution, and demands for disputed territories went unanswered. One year ago, for those of you who are here, you may have remembered me talking about uh, this. Anyway, this was the time large areas of Iraq had fallen to ISIS. The caliphate had been declared. Malik, Prime Minister Maliki was blamed and to a great extent, in my opinion, deservedly, for creating the climate of sectarianism, ignoring the threat of ISIS. He was replaced at... Uh, with almost a universal consensus uh, by Haider el-Abadi, and you have to remember his political party, the system, Supreme Leader Khamenei, uh, Ayatollah Sistani, Iran, and the United States all agreed that he had to go, that he, he bore some responsibility here. Now, uh, a body came in, he promised reforms to the provinces and a federal power sharing system, the kind of things that the Kurds and others were demanding. He fired generals. He uh, removed the ceremonial deputy prime ministers and vice presidents, eliminated ministries. He fired generals. Oh, I said that already, sorry. <laughs> I hate to repeat myself. And he sent to Parliament uh, bills for the approval of Kurdish contracting oil sales as a way to get concessions and uh, move forward and for the creation of a new National Guard uh, as an appeal to Sunnis in particular to try to uh, show that there, were, there was an interest and support for their key issues. Now, well done, we thought. Isn't it great? We've got a reformist. Maybe things will get better now. There were high hopes. But Iraqis politicians refused to cooperate. They chose instead to focus their energies on control and on undermining his authority. I think that the state and the provinces have still failed to deliver needed goods and services. And meanwhile, Kurdistan and many areas of Iraq were overwhelmed by more refugees fleeing ethnic cleansing from the Islamic Caliphate, and we know what the fate of the Yazidis and other minorities uh, were killed, captured, forced to convert, and the women enslaved. Is there no God? You must have asked yourself if you were there. Where is the state to protect us? 
today, here we are today, uh, Iraq appears to be in a dangerous stagnation. Domestic politics has not improved. Uh, the Prime Minister is having difficulty in uh, acting. The Parliament shows little ability to act. Uh, and Iraqi politics seems in disarray. The war goes on. With advances and setbacks, I can't follow who's where at whatever day, who is winning. Uh, it's, it's extremely confusing. The war goes on, though, with advances and setbacks, especially in Anbar and Beji. Terrorist attacks are common occurrences in and around Baghdad. And the caliphate continues what it thinks is governing. And I put that in quotes, since governing can be as simple as rule by terror uh, or uh, by co uh, accompanied by co-optation. And ISIS is very good at that. Shock and awe, remember shock and awe? ISIS brings that to you freely. Now, uh, there have been, since July, nonviolent demonstrations in several Iraqi cities, especially in Baghdad. I stress nonviolent. People are coming out in the streets. Iraqis are coming out in the streets, demanding change. They want water, electricity, 24 7. Why is it taking so long? They want reforms. They seem to be supporting the kind of things a body wants to give them, but doesn't seem empowered by the system to do. There are also, one must note, violent demonstrations going on in the Kurdish area. There have been, especially in Suleimania and Erbil, where the, uh, the Kurdish KRG security forces fired uh, live fire on the demonstrators last week, and the estimates vary between maybe maybe it's only four, maybe it's ten, maybe it's more, we don't know. But they've also done a lot of other things, and I will come back to that in a minute. I simply wanted to set the picture here. Now, we're aware that there are a lot of game changers going on, but... Um, and I don't want, I won't get into these, they haven't talked about. What's the significance of Russia's presence in Syria and Iraq? Great question. I think the Iraqis are turning to anywhere they can. Yeah, Putin seems, to, Sheikh Putin seems to be very popular. This, these are all momentary things. This is a system that is desperate uh, for uh, some ability to protect and defend itself. And what do we expect it to do? I don't know what that new center in Baghdad means. There are some Iraqis who want to what, let loose the Soviets, Russians. That's not going to happen. But I think that there, there is a great concern for survival. Talk about Qasem Soleimaniya. He's a general. He's in charge of military strategy. I, he may be much more hardline than anybody else, but I don't think that's the place to go if you want to change an Iranian policy um, in Iraq. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. I think we have to think about what's changing in Iraqi politics. The militias uh, are many. Some of them are very powerful, Iran-backed, loyal to Sistani, loyal to the government, but not all under any single control. What will be the role for them in the future? They're needed to fight now, but there's also dangers in some of the fighting that they're doing. Um, what will happen? Who controls them? And what happens when the war for Iraq is over, assuming that there is an end point? And there I, I still do. I still have that faith. Do these militias go home? Do they disarm? Who disarms? And you might ask, who disarms anywhere in the Middle East? Uh, it's hard to see in any country, any group disarming. But the point is, this is Iraq. These militias could very well change shape. They may go home. They may not go home. They may become political parties. And if so, to whom and to, who and to what will they be loyal? Question about Iran and Iraq. 
Is Iran changing its strategy in Iraq or just making tactical adjustments? Here I agree with something Paul said um, about uh, the changes in policy because I've heard similar things from Iraqis that I have been talking to recently. Iran's strategy since 2003 is to support a weak but united government that can keep Iraq together and t unable to ever threaten it again. It succeeded in that. Iran has not shown an interest in occupying Iraq militarily. It doesn't have to. It occupies it in many, or has occupied it in many other ways. And it has not advanced territorial claims, although it has claims it would love, including reparations for the eight-year war. Now, Iraq's Shia are Arab for the most part, for almost entirely. They're not Persian. They are independent in spirit, but realistic enough to know that there's little they can do to counter Iranian influence in their country. Iran has many friends, not just the Shia. They've got friends among the Kurds. They have friends and allies among the Sunni Arabs, many of whom are very friendly with Qasem Soleimani, as you must know, or you may not. Take my word for it. If there is going to be a change, It'll be tactical. Some say it'll be that Iran will turn to giving greater support for a stronger Baghdad, a stronger central state which can maintain greater control. Um, on the other hand, as Paul uh, has indicated, and as my sources, uh, some of them tell me, Iran has two strategies in Iraq. And that those two strategies are to keep ISIS away from its borders and, the shrine, and protect the shrine cities. This could imply that Iran at some point will be willing to capitulate, capitulate to ISIS as long as it leaves them alone. Um, I, I'm not sure that I can see that. I don't think that that, that means that you know, we can deal with them. I don't think that that's going to happen, but nobody knows what the future holds. So, some fearless predictions and a comment on U.S. policy, and I'm finished. Am I doing a run on time? Okay. First of all, the Kurds will do wrong things, the wrong thing. When Baghdad is weak, traditionally the Kurds have pressed hardest and are most demanding. They demand Kirkuk, they may or not care about Mosul, but they keep insisting on keeping whatever they have. And they occupied, remember, the disputed territories while ISIS was taking Mosul. And they say they will never give them up. Um, I think that even they themselves must be uncertain what the next move should be. They need Iran and Turkey to acquiesce to their independence, which they have toned down, if you may have noticed, and they've been told to tone down the demand that uh, neither Iran nor Turkey is interested in that right now. It's not an issue. Um, they need them, but I am not sure of the impact of what Masoud Barzani is doing and declaring himself president for life. He's now in the 10th year of an eight-year term, which is against the Kurdish constitution. But again, um, I'll come back to that in a minute. I doubt Iran can accept any of these demands. But who knows, because this whole situation is so much up in the air. But I will say this, the Kurds have now done the wrong thing. And what's happened in the past week, they staged what some in Kurdistan are calling a coup. Uh, the KDP has forced the resignation uh, with these demonstrations, after the demonstrations and the killings. They forced the resignation of all of the, you know, there's a third party that's been emerging and gaining strength. Uh, it is a it has uh, significant membership or had in the Kurdish parliament and had a deputy parliamentary speaker. They've all been thrown out of the government, out of the cabinet, and accused of provoking the demonstrations, which turned violent, 
Um, I've seen no reaction from Baghdad, and you'd think here's an opportunity to show some kind of interest and uh, do something. The question is, are the Kurds using the ISIS crisis ISIS crisis, my God, I must be tired, to their advantage, first in occupying territories rather than defending uh, against ISIS and now in creating a crisis to ensure KDP and Barzani political control and eliminating a challenge to their uh, authority. What's to be gained if you win this battle and you lose the war? Because unless these elements come together, Shia, the militias, the government uh, forces, and the Kurds, how are you going to defeat something like ISIS? Hmm. Okay, I think Iran will also follow its historic pattern, and it will overreach. They always do. How much is Russian assistance worth to Tehran? How deep and long will Iran battle in Iraq? There's a cost for all of these things. And what's the cost going to be uh, that, Ir that Russia will demand, or and how far will Iran go? Again, Iraq, um, I, okay, well, let, me, let me skip, I've already talked about that. Um, let me go to the recommendations, because I don't want to, we're all getting tired. My first recommendation, let me speak to Iraq first, and then I want to speak to the U.S. and the GCC. Let, it go, let a body govern. He and Iraq need to show results, and there's very little time. His rivals need to support his efforts, they need to stop trying to weaken his authority, and they need to work constructively to keep government functioning. The public demonstrations since last summer continue to demand political reform, electricity, 24-7, uh, clean water, better security. He needs to establish... Don't ask me how. Uh, the security or uh, control over these different security organizations and militias. Uh, second point would be uh, the parliament. You need to approve the oil negotiations with the KRG and the proposed law creating National Guard units without reasonable concessions to these different elements um, and uh, to these basic needs and assurances. ISIS can't be defeated, Mosul will not be retaken, and it's hard to see if there's going to be any improvement. The militias need to be brought under control and prevented from seeking revenge on Sunni Arabs and others held responsible for the crimes of Saddam Hussein. We have long always suspected, and we've seen it in reality, that where the Shia militias have moved in, they have been responsible for ethnic cleansing of Sunnis, both south of Baghdad, when Daesh was, was routed, and it's been happening in some of the areas where they have been active in the North, it's got to stop. Uh, no more ethnic cleansing in the name of we won, it's ours, they must go. And that's true for all the sides in this. Um, I know that uh, the pattern in the region is for, and in, in Iraq has been for successful military leaders to become political leaders and for malicious continued act, it's got to stop. If these conditions aren't corrected, I will be, I, I, I think, Iraq will become as, I think it was a New York Times journalist who wrote this last week, but I couldn't find the source because my computer died two nights ago. Um, he said, uh, he described it as a battlefield, but not a country. And I think that's pretty close to reality. Now, very shortly, and then I'm finished, to the United States, I just have one thing, stay committed to Iraq. You have a good chance, you have leverage, you have influence, use it. 
and we haven't used it smartly, and we haven't used it sufficiently in the past. To the Iraqis, I can only say one or two words, stay free. Try to maintain your independence. You need a lot of elements and support if you're going to survive. To the Russians, be careful what you ask for. You're already being threatened by Daesh publicly, which is calling for attacks in Russia on them because of what they're doing in Syria and Iraq. There are always consequences to what happens in the Middle East. Now, I'm, I'm, my final comments, and I just wrote this as I heard the last panel talk, and I'm, I have to say it. I'm sorry that so many people in the region uh, continue to uh, regret the removal of Saddam. I think that's appalling. I think it shows in part uh, the kind of neglect that has gone on for a long time where Iraq was totally avo avoided, neglected, nobody cared. You had an opportunity to, I think, influence the course of events there in a positive way, and you didn't. And I'm being very harsh in this now, but again, John knows that when I finish, I always say something stupid, no, critical. <laughs> Iraq, in my own personal opinion, and I think I'm not going to defend Bush administration policy or Obama per se, but I do need to say this. Iraq would not, in my opinion, have held much longer, up much longer under Saddam anyway. But the thing that I think is that to say that you think the U.S. is to blame for instability in the region, give me a break. Um, we made mistakes. I've been the first, even when I was working for the government, to point that out. And I was in a think tank for the Department of Defense. And I said that then, before, during, and after. And I wasn't punished for it. I don't know why. I approached. There were people who would have liked to. But the point is, um, the blame, uh, we accepted, we accept responsibility. Yeah, we made mistakes. We did some stupid things. We did some things right as well. But I think you can all see that the, what was happening in Iraq could not have been prevented. Are we to blame for sectarianism? Excuse me. Sectarianism begins, what is it, 670 with the battle? And uh, has been always present, even if it's an identity issue, it's not open militia, but Iraq never had sectarian warfare until the post-2003 period, and the uh, uncontrolled rise of these militias and sectarian forces. Now, you may not like it, and I will point out to you that when you win a war, you go with the allies that fought with you and supported you, sadly to say, yeah, where did that support come from? Well, it came from Kurdish, Kurdish fighters and from Shia fighters. Where were the Sunnis and the Arabs in this? There was a, Something missing there? How much in, we wanted, we did look for influence from the Sunni community, which was deeply uh, affected. As we, I won't go into all of that now. I think you know that as well as I do. The Gulf states in this, in this there is a Western perception, let me put it as, as politely as I can, that the Gulf states share a responsibility for events in this region uh, for uh, not fully maybe wanting to deal or understanding it. But I think uh, the, the question, not my question necessarily, but the question in general that is constantly right, from where do the Salafis draw their courage and support, the ideology, I mean, I, this is very brutal, this is honesty. But I think you have to recognize that's what you're dealing with when these issues are presented. Um, last two points, please. U.S. has a right, by the way, to its own economic, political debates. 
What is political disarray in this country? I know it's hard to understand from the outside how the American political system works, but let me tell you, it is our system. And what you're seeing in all these political debates and what you can call this kind of disarray, and I'm not talking about what goes on inside the, the White House itself, but in general, the political discourse, this is American political tradition, and uh, you may not like it, but it's what we are and what we do. It's who we are and what we do. Finally. Finally. <laughs> I think we all, need, we all need to ask ourselves, put the past behind us. These are all differences. I've hit on, some, I know, some very sensitive points. But we have to work together if we're going to succeed, because what threatens us in this region today is unlike any threat we've seen before. And if we don't work together, 